That's great. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you. We don't do music quite like that where I come from. So we may have to have you and Brandon lead that song for us when you guys are there at the, at the end of the month. I love being at the bridge. I'm uh, humbled that you continue to invite me back. It's also a great joy to me to be able to help give Brandon a little bit of a break over these next couple of weeks. So I'll be here not only uh, this morning, but also next Sunday as well. And on Saturday, I'm going to be involved in helping lead a retreat for the elders of, of the church, which this is our third year doing that. And it is a great uh, joy to be together with your leaders. You have wonderful leaders. You should thank the Lord for the ones that he has provided for you. As Connie said in the call to worship, the mission of the Bridge Church is to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. But what is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Or in other words, what is a disciple? A disciple, quite simply, and if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know this, but if you've not, a definition of a disciple, quite simply, is somebody who follows Jesus over the course of their life and increasingly through the work of the Holy Spirit, becomes more and more like Jesus Christ. But the question before us this morning is how does all of that take place? How do people become increasingly fully devoted followers of Christ? How do people grow into the likeness of Christ? How do people become disciples? That's our question this morning. How many of you here like to cook. Just, I know some of you have to cook, but how many of you here like to cook? It looks like just a few of you. Well, my daughter Flannery, who's right here in the middle here, is 12, and she's recently taken a liking to cooking. It could have to do with all of the cooking shows that she likes to watch with her mom and with her sisters, like Somebody Feed Phil. Have you guys seen this one on Netflix? I love, I love that one. Nailed it or Cheapest Weddings, and the Big Family Cooking Showdown. These are some of the ones that they watch. I didn't ask her about all of them. But her favorite thing to cook right now is sugar cookies. And she recently, for our staff retreat, everybody kind of pitched in and making cookies, and Flannery made sugar cookies. And the speaker pulled me aside, and he said, your daughter's cookies are the best in the bunch. And I know I'm biased, but I think he was right. So what is it that goes into making sugar cookies? On the one hand, it's really not that complicated. But on the other hand, there are some very non-negotiable, completely essential things that have to go into making sugar cookies. First of all, you have to have an oven and hopefully a cookie sheet. Um, but then also you're going to need at least a couple of basic ingredients like flour and sugar. But those things in and of themselves won't make the cookies. You have to have somebody that's going to put it all together and make it work. And that's really what makes Flannery's sugar cookies the best. It's her. It's the spunk and the love that she puts in to those cookies. Making disciples, back to our topic, in a similar fashion, is really the work of God. It is him it's through his own spirit that disciples are made. But this is what I want you to hear this morning. I want that to be 
the foundation. But I want you to hear this as well. Although God is the one who makes us more like Jesus, he uses means. Disciples do not just pop out of thin air. They are, God uses means in doing all of that. And what are those means? For one, he uses the church. The church is like the oven. It's like the cookie sheets. But in addition to that, God uses certain ingredients. And the most basic of those ingredients are his word and prayer. So if you've taken um, the membership course here at the Bridge Church, um, you'll know kind of what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I would recommend you do the next time that they offer it. But in that class, you know that they talk about the fact that the only way that disciples are made is when you share your life with one another. We need each other in the church. That's that kind of oven thing for making disciples. Disciples are made in the context of relationships. And at the Bridge Church, that means one-on-one -on -one relationships. It means bridge groups. And it means doing what we're doing right now, which is just simply gathering together for corporate worship. But what should you do in those one-on-one -on -one relationships, in those bridge groups, and as you gather together for worship? You should minister the word to one another. You should pray with and for one another. Those are the basic ingredients that God uses in building disciples. God is making disciples at the Bridge Church, but it's not because of any creative ideas that you have come up with. It is through his word and through prayer. And it's that second ingredient of prayer that I want to talk about this morning. One of the essential non-negotiable ingredients in your mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ. What we're going to learn this morning, quite simply, is that prayer is powerful. As we respond to God's word in prayer, God uses our prayer, which is the amazing, uh, the amazing thing. I've got on the screen here, this was from a series that we did, the different means that God uses in making disciples. You've got the word prayer, pastors, that kind of fellowship thing, the Lord's Supper, and then habits is that, that other thing over on the side. But prayer is one of the means God uses, and prayer is powerful. As we respond to God's word in prayer, he uses it to do his work in our lives of making us more like Jesus. So what I want to do with our time this morning, this is kind of my standard thing I do in all of my sermons, chart the course. What I want to do is make a case from the Bible that prayer is powerful. Well, normally my habit would be to exposit a particular passage of Scripture, but this morning I'm going to be more topical in nature. We're going to look at a number of different passages, but make a case from the Bible that prayer is powerful, and then at the end to give one practical way you can engage in prayer as members of this church at the bridge. Now, just a disclaimer, this is not an exhaustive sermon on prayer. There is so much more that could be said on prayer, and that's why you guys have been talking about prayer for over a couple of months now, if my looking at the website was right. My purpose this morning is simply to establish prayer as one of these means of grace, one of these means of making disciples of Jesus Christ, and then to offer what I 
trust will be a very life-changing application for you. So let's begin. Prayer is powerful. Why do I say that? Quite simply, because the Bible says it explicitly in James chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, just listen. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. That's the English Standard Translation. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Or as the NIV says, prayer is powerful and effective. Quite literally, from the Greek, it says prayer is powerful to a great degree being effective. It's kind of piling up imagery for the power of prayer. Let me say that again. Prayer is powerful to a great degree being effective. So why do I say that prayer is powerful? The main point of my sermon, quite simply, because the Bible tells us in this verse that that is the case. However, I don't want to simply give you a proof text this morning on the power of prayer. I want to give you a picture of the power of prayer, a vision, if you will, of prayer's power. And then I want to deal with a couple of qualifying questions that you may have, which most people have, about the effectiveness of prayer. The reason I want to start with a picture is because I believe in the power of the imagination. If you can visualize in your mind the power of prayer, then you may be able um, to be motivated in your heart to make the appropriate use of prayer in your life. You see the connection? This, this vision, this picture in your mind, hopefully it can translate to your heart and then into your life. The vision that I want to share with you of prayer's power comes from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, just for a little context, was a book written to believers who were being persecuted. John, writing to these churches, wants them to know that in the midst of their persecution, they will be vindicated. What that means is that the people who are opposing them will be judged and they will be delivered. So everything in the book of Revelation is dealing with that particular purpose, to encourage these believers. And in response to their persecution, we see that the saints in Revelation, they prayed to God in chapter 6 and said this. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Sounds like the Psalms. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on all those who dwell on the earth? You ever feel that way? How long, O Lord? Eugene Peterson, commenting on this verse, says this is what was going on, the churches in John's day. While conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn raged against them. Listen to this. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. So why didn't they have a mental breakdown? Why didn't they cut and run, Peterson asks. Well, they prayed, he says. But what happened 
for their prayers? Were they answered? Or did they simply fall on deaf ears? One author, Ben Patterson, says, if their experience was anything like mine can be, they may feel like their prayers are barely making it to the ceiling or dribbling out and rustling across the floor like dry leaves. Sometimes prayer can seem so ineffective. Can you relate to this picture? So what happened to the prayers of the saints that were being offered up in Revelation 6? Well, we're told in Revelation chapter 8 that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now think about the significance of this just real quick. So they offer up these prayers, and we're told in the seventh seal opened, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Again, Eugene Peterson comments on this verse. We live in a noisy world. We are yelled at, promoted, called. Everyone has an urgent message for us. We are summoned with noise. He was writing in the 80s here. Telephone, radio, television, stereo. I would add smartphones, pings, podcasts. Messages are amplified deafeningly. The world is a mob in which everyone is talking at once and no one is able or willing to listen. But God listens. Not only does he speak to us in his word, he listens to us when we pray. There is silence in heaven for about half of an hour. God listens. Everything we say, every groan, Every stammering attempt at prayer, all this is listened to. All heaven quiets down. And so what then happens when God hears and listens to our prayers? This is the main thing I want to focus your attention on now. And I want you, as I read this, these verses to you, I want you to try and picture in your mind, visualize what is going on. Verses 3 to 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it down on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you see what is going on? Sure, sometimes when we pray, it seems like God is sleeping, but he's not. Our prayers do not simply go up into heaven to be locked away in some heavenly filing cabinet, never to be seen again. They are mixed with fire of the Holy Spirit and returned to the earth in power. When our prayers hit the earth, there is a great impact, like an atomic bomb, like an earthquake over 10 on the Richter scale. These prayers, think about this. 
Remember how we described the church in the first century? These prayers go up from people with no votes, no power, no money, no influence. They go up in great humility without much fanfare at all, but they return with great force. The great poet George Herbert called this reversed thunder. Thunder is an expression of the awesome power of God, but prayer somehow harnesses that power so that in our petitions, they, as they're heard in heaven, they're not heard as whispers, but as Tim Keller says, is a crack, boom, roar. Prayer changes things. That's what I want you to hear this morning. This vision blows my mind. It's not the picture of the persecuted church offering prayers that blows my mind. We should expect that. What blows my mind is the fact that John would pull back the curtain for us, to give us this apocalyptic vision of what is happening in the very throne room of God whenever humble Christians like you and me get on our knees and offer prayer to him. Reversed thunder. Of all of the things in God's plans and in God's sovereign purposes, to redeem a people for himself and to transform them into the image of God. Think of this. This is a glorious and magnificent plan. And of all of the things in God's plan and purpose, isn't it amazing to think that God even uses our prayer to bring about his purposes? In this case, Revelation 8, to bring about his judgment. Have you ever thought about that? It's the prayers of the saints that God uses to bring judgment on the world? How much more could he use our prayers to provide transformation in our lives? This vision is designed, I think, to convince Christians of the power and the potencies of prayer. So let me ask you a question. Are you convinced? will be proven by your life. God uses our prayers for his actions. Do you believe that? Well, some people, not that there would be any like that here, um, they're so darn practical. And they think they're too busy to pray because they're so busy with the practical things of life, of making disciples. But again, I quote Eugene Peterson who says, prayer is the most practical thing that anyone can do. It is not mystical escape. It is, listen to this, historical engagement. Prayer participates in God's action in real time and in real history. I pray that this prayer, or this motivates you to pray. But with this powerful picture in our mind, there are certainly some questions that come into your mind. 
is this type of prayer, or this type of power, should I say, available to anyone who prays? Another question, will any kind of prayer yield this kind of power? Or in other words, whose prayers are powerful and what kind of prayers are powerful? Those are two questions I want to try and answer before we move on to this practical application. The first question, are anybody's prayers uh, powerful? I think James answers this in the passage we began with. Remember what it said. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So right there, we've got a hint that not everybody's prayer is powerful and effective. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. But the second I say that, I want to make a qualification. The righteous person spoken of here is not, hear this, the super spiritual person. That's not who James is talking about. He's simply referring to believers. The person who has been made right, been made righteous, as we read earlier, by God through faith in Jesus Christ. The person whose sins have been forgiven through faith in the gospel. That's whose prayers are powerful. James wants to be very clear. Prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest of believers. It does not require, as Doug Moo says, a super saint to wield its power effectively. Prayer is not powerful for just anybody. We need to hear that. It's only powerful for believers, but it's powerful for any believer. We read in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Those who are sons have the spirit of the son that helps them to pray. You can't pray our Father who art in heaven, unless you are a child of the heavenly Father. And in our sin, we are not children of God. Ephesians 2 tells us instead that we are children of wrath. But if we are in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God, and now we have access to our benevolent and powerful heavenly Father by the blood of Jesus Christ through his spirit. And so now, as God's children, we can come boldly before the throne of grace where God, the angels, are mixing up our prayers to throw them back down onto the earth in power. Prayer is powerful for all who believe in Jesus. So if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your prayers 
are not powerful. But here's the good news of the gospel. As Joshua Slomsel already said today, you can do that today. You can become a child of God today who then has access to the throne of God's grace. Jesus died for our sins. If you believe that and surrender your life and your heart to him, then you will no longer be a slave to sin. But you will be a child of God with full access to him in prayer. Isn't that good news? But what kind of prayer is powerful? That's the second question. Is any prayer powerful and effective? I think John chapter 5, verse 14 answers this question pretty clearly. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So quite simply, God uses prayer that is according to his will in powerful ways to accomplish his glorious purposes. So many people are frustrated or discouraged when their prayers go unanswered. That may even cause them to kind of stop praying, right? They just, again, it, it seems like dry leaves rustling across the floor, hitting the top of the ceiling. But friends, unanswered prayers, I mean, there's a lot of things going on with unanswered prayers, but one of them is that unanswered prayers are often prayers that aren't in line with God's will or with God's timing, right? Heard Brandon talk about that. But not in line with God's will is one of the reasons our prayers go unanswered. Isn't that perspective helpful? Do you want God to answer prayers that are outside of his perfect and sovereign will? No. We shouldn't want anything outside of the will of God. But often our prayers are actually intentionally designed to be outside of the will of God. I think that's what James says in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. He says, you do not have because you don't ask, but you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, so asking for things that the world has to offer, is enmity with God. We shouldn't expect God to answer prayers that are designed to fuel our worldly lusts and passions. Do we really want to receive things from God which will further put a wedge in our relationship with him that will create enmity with him? We want to ask for things that will further God's purposes in our lives, not hinder them. So we shouldn't expect God to answer prayers that aren't in line with his will. That wouldn't be for our good. And it certainly wouldn't be for God's glory. So instead, the heartbeat of our prayers need to be like that of Jesus, who says what? Not my will, but yours be done. Or like Mary in her marvelous prayer, where she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. Or as you've just learned in the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is powerful. 
It's powerful for all believers. It's God's means of getting God's work done in the lives of his people who pray according to his will. But how do we pray according to his will so that we can pray in power? Often this according to his will becomes this like grand qualification that basically makes all of the teaching about the power of prayer just go out the window. But I don't think that needs to be the case. How do we pray according to God's will? That's the question I want to turn to now and give one main application. I want to suggest that we increasingly learn how to pray the Bible. Praying the Bible has been, for me, the most transformational, I would say, in the last five to seven years, transformational spiritual discipline in all of my Christian life. Now, don't get me wrong. Praying the Bible is not the only way to pray within the will of God. It's not the only way to pray faithfully. I'm not saying that at all. The reason I'm emphasizing this is because my guess is for most of you, this is an unfamiliar practice that's not taught a lot in the broader Christian world. It may well be taught in this church, but in the broader Christian world. And so I want to focus on it for those reasons. I'm not knocking other forms of prayer. I'm simply highlighting this form of prayer. James Boyce said about learning how to pray the Bible, that it's a little bit like learning to play the violin with the virtuosos. Does anybody here play violin? None? Oh, man. It's going to have fun with you. But would you agree that this is true, what James Boyce says? No instrument sounds worse in the beginning stages of learning. It's all screech and scratch, he says. So what should a student do if he wants to play well? Boyce offers a very unique suggestion. He says he needs to listen to the best classical music. And then what he needs to do is he needs to go and buy the score for the best violin concertos and then to listen to the music and play along as he listens. He says this, at first he sounds terrible. As time passes, however, he begins little by little to sound more and more like the orchestra. But all along as he groans on his instrument, the orchestra plays the music beautifully. His poor performance is caught up and completed in the music of the masters. I love that. So it is with us in prayer. By praying the Bible back to God, we learn to pray in tune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Over the last number of years, I've been learning how to play or pray in harmony with the Bible, but it takes time. I would like to encourage you to learn how to pray by praying the Bible as well. Let God's word shape and form your prayers. Let me try and just pry into your prayer life a little bit here. Many Christians feel quite defeated in their prayer life. Anybody here relate with that? To pray even for five or seven minutes in a row seems like an eternity. 
and your minds are endlessly wandering. Isn't it amazing the things that they wander off to when we're trying to pray to God? Don Whitney says that many Christians are in a rut. Do you feel like that? Many people simply pray the same old things in the same old ways. And when you pray things, the same old things in the same old ways, that becomes very boring. And many people conclude that the problem is with them. Again, I'm not spiritual enough. They must be second-rate Christians. But the problem isn't likely with you, Whitney says. It is likely in your method. Sounds a little bit like a salesman, which I can appreciate. I was telling I used to be in sales before I was in the pastorate. The problem's not likely with you. It's likely with your method. Let me tell you about this new method. But I think he's right. Most people feel stuck in their prayers. And so if the problem is generally universal, then the solution also needs to be wide enough that all Christians can participate in it, not just those with a super high IQ or not just those who love to be by themselves all the time and quiet, you know, the real introverted types. I'm clearly not that. The solution must also be something found in the Bible, not just some newfangled technique. Whitney says the solution, as you would guess, is to pray a passage of Scripture especially a psalm. That's what Jesus did. And if we were to be his disciples, doesn't it make sense that we would follow him and do what he did? At the end of his life, as Jesus hung, dying on a cross, what did he do? He went to the scriptures for his prayers, most specifically the psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, 5. At the point of his greatest anguish, greatest extremity, Jesus turned to the Bible for his prayers. Charles Spurgeon once said that Jesus, the grand original thinker, saw no need to be original or extemporaneous. How instructive is this for us? How instructive, Spurgeon says, is the truth that the incarnate word lived on the inspired word. It was food for him as it is for us. Hopefully that's enough to convince you to pray the Bible. But how do you pray the Bible? There's so much, again, that could be said but for now, I want to offer just a few suggestions. I'm going to kind of move from sermon to seminar a little bit here, but it'll be brief. Four suggestions. You may write them down. First, use the Psalms. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. All scripture can be prayed, but Psalms is a book that consists solely, exclusively of prayers. Doesn't it make sense that we would become very familiar with the prayers of the Bible. There are other prayers in the Bible, like Paul's prayers, for example, that are, great, that are a great resource. Don Carson's book on the prayers of Paul, you should get. 
It's another great way to go. But the church has placed the Psalms at the center of their worship and prayer for over 2,000 years. We should do the same. I recommend getting a plan to work through the Psalms systematically. There's dozens of them. You can do a Psalm a day or you can use some other plan. It doesn't matter. Just come up with a plan to systematically work your way through the Psalms over and over again. Second, use the words of a passage as a springboard for your prayers. This works especially well if you're praying a psalm or one of Paul's prayers. You simply start working your way through the scripture, a word or a phrase at a time, and then you use that word or that phrase as a springboard for your prayer. So for example, if you're praying through Psalm 23, you'll read, the Lord is my shepherd. Stop there and begin to pray. Allow that truth to lead you into prayer. Thank God that he is a shepherd to you. Thank God that he sent the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Pray that God would protect, provide, and guide as shepherds do for your family, for your loved ones, for those in your workplace. Continue on in this way as long as you like and then move on to the next line. I shall not want and continue in that fashion. Third, Use the ACTS acronym to pray through a passage. This works with any passage of Scripture. Are you guys mainly familiar with the ACTS acronym? ACTS is adoration. A is adoration. C, confession. T, thanksgiving. And S is supplication, which is like our requests or petitions, things along those lines. So start reading the passage in front of you. This is how the method works. And after you have some kind of sense of its meaning, ask what you learn about God that you can give him adoration for or praise. Then ask, what does this teach, teach me about me, teach me about man that would lead me to confess my sins? And then thank God that through Christ you have forgiveness of your sins. And then look at other things in the passage that may give you cause to give thanks God. Lastly, identify things in the passage that you need to ask God for, to provide for you. This is the supplication section of your prayers, whether it's growth and godliness and Christ-likeness, whether it's providing for some of your needs. But let the scriptures be the springboard for the... They're your prayer list. It's not that you can't have another prayer list, but let the Bible actually set your prayer list. Instead of it being these two sets, I'm going to read my Bible and then I'm going to pray. Instead, let the revealed word that comes down to you be your response to the word. Revelation, response, rhythm. That's the Christian life. So that's how you can pray. Fourth, paraphrase a passage and make it your own. It's similar to the springboard approach, but slightly different. It simply involves taking the words of Scripture, putting them into your own words that apply to your life today or to the lives of those that you're praying for. If you will use these methods, I'm convinced that you will not be bored. You won't say the same old things in the same old way. When I'm going extemporaneous, again, it doesn't take long before, and I'm a pastor. I'm like paid to be a spiritual person. And I drift off. 
But when I start working through two or three psalms, an hour can pass. And I'm thinking, where is the time gone? I need to actually get to my to-do list for today, right? And the depth of my prayers are obviously there as well. Praying scripture is also the best way that I know to pray according to God's will. And if we want our prayers to be powerful, we need to pray according to God's will. This call to prayer in conclusion. By the way, I love when Brandon preaches. He like says in conclusion three times. I'm only going to do that once today. I've just got another page. This call to prayer in power according to scriptures, I think, is illustrated so well in the life of George Mueller. Any of you guys familiar with George Mueller? If not, you may just pick up a little tiny biography on his life. Mueller is widely considered one of the greatest men in prayer in all of church history. He's best known for his work um, with orphans. His orphanage in Bristol housed as many as 2,000 children at one time. And over the course of his life, that particular orphanage saw 10,000 orphans come through. But Mueller never made the needs of his ministry known to anybody. Think about the barrage of support letters that we get, and I'm thankful for them. He never sent out a single support letter in his whole life. He never made the needs of his ministry known to anybody except for God. And Mueller, in his prayer journals, had over 50,000 specific answers to prayer that were recorded in his journals. God funneled over the course of his life over a half a billion dollars in today's dollars through his ministry, simply through answers to his prayers. Isn't that an extraordinary testimony? With a testimony like that, you're probably wondering how George Mueller prayed. Well, his early years, interestingly enough, were a struggle. It was difficult, he says, for him to get into a spirit of prayer where he felt like he was really praying. But then he made a slight alteration to his method and things changed for him. Let you listen to him in his own words. I was sharing earlier, I think it's important to get a taste in people's own words of what they say. This is what he said. The difference then between my former practice and my present one is this. Formerly, when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible and generally spent all my time till breakfast in prayer, or almost all the time. And at all events, I almost invariably began with prayer. So here's a very devout man, right? But what was the result? I often spent a quarter of an hour or half an hour or even an hour on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived comfort, encouragement, humbling of soul, etc. And often, after having suffered much from wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or a quarter of an hour or even half of an hour, I only then really began to pray. I scarcely ever suffer now in this way for my heart being nourished by the truth, being brought into experiential fellowship with God, I speak to my Father and to my friend. Isn't that amazing? Vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word, it often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see this point. 
But isn't he simply saying what we've been saying all along? The word of God is powerful, is an ingredient in making disciples. And prayer is powerful when Christians pray in the will of God. As believers who are seeking to make disciples and become disciples of Jesus Christ who glorify God, we need to avail ourselves to the means of grace, to the word, and to prayer. These are the ingredients that God uses in making disciples, and especially when it's according to the will of God, which is found in the word of God. That's all that I have. I'm going to pray, though, and as I do so, I'm going to do a little bit of an exercise to demonstrate to you what it is that I do as I pray through a psalm. So would you open your Bible to Psalm 130? How are we doing on time? We're good? Okay, I'm almost done. I'm going to do this as a closing prayer, and then we'll have a benediction, and then you will be out. So Psalm 130, open your Bible there. And let's turn to the Lord in prayer, just kind of following along as you go. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord. Father, I'm reminded of what John Calvin said, that we are destitute and devoid of all good things without your help. We don't have the resources we need in ourselves. We must go outside of ourselves to you in prayer. We find ourselves in the depths, and so we cry to you. We are completely dependent on you. As we pray, help us to realize that we have no blessing apart from you and that we will receive nothing from you unless we ask. O Lord, hear our voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of our pleas for mercy. We are amazed that you hear us, but we know that it is only by the mercy shown to us in Christ. What a privilege we have to bring our request before you and to ask for more mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We pray that we would not take it for granted. Although we are children of God with full access to your throne, we still acknowledge that you are God and we are not. Teach us, Lord, holy reverence, true humility. We wait for you, O Lord. Our soul waits, and in your word we place our hope. Our soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Father, there are many things upon which we wait for you. For those who are sick, we wait for healing. For those who are grieving, we wait for comfort. Most importantly, we wait for transformation. We desire that you work in us that which is pleasing to you in your sight. We want to be formed in the school of Christ. Our enemies surround us, and we wait for deliverance. Deliver us from sin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
We trust in your word. We believe that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so we wait on you to do your work. You call the church to hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with you there is plentiful redemption. And you will redeem your people from all of their iniquities. Father, we pray that you would help us to hope in you and in you alone. While we pray for our government and our country as we did earlier, we pray that we would not hope in them. We pray that our hope would be in you. While we are thankful for the many blessings that you have given to us in this life, money and health and privilege, we pray that we would not hope in these either, but in you alone. And we pray that you would work to show the nations your steadfast love and plentiful redemption. We pray that you would redeem people around the globe from their iniquities. Use our missions partners. Use people in this church who share the gospel with their neighbors in your glorious cause, O oh God. Help us who have come to know your steadfast love and the hope that we have in Christ to share that love and hope with those we meet this week. Thank you for the gift of prayer and that you answer our prayers. We pray that you would continue to impress upon us the power of prayer and our great need. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I guess in some ways that was a second conclusion, so I shouldn't diss on Brandon. If you have any questions about how to do this practical application, of praying scripture, I'd be happy to visit with you afterward. But now would you please stand for the benediction, which comes from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever.